Good afternoon, it's just after 1pm and you're tuned into the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. I'll be your host for the next hour. My name is Kingsley Kipuri and I'm joined in studio by expert reporter Greg Nicholson of the Daily Maverick. Thanks for having me. I'm not sure if expert is true, but thanks for having me. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, now, Greg, today we'll be talking about the, the issue of land reform. Um, this has been a, a very heated topic, not only in South Africa's history, but especially quite recently. It's become quite the politically sexy topic. Politically uh, controversial, I'd say. I don't know if land reform can ever be sexy, but there, there's a lot of discussion, particularly with the EFF coming out um, and and really demanding that, that the government give back people the land. Absolutely. Now, before we get into the into the, the details of that, um, you and I took a walk this past weekend, walked around Bramfontein while all the partying was happening to get to get to hear from just everyday young South Africans to get a listen to what they think of the topic. It was a good excuse to grab a beer, but we we asked them at the same time what they think about land reform. <laughs> right, let's have a listen. Oh, hold on, let me give you. Gents, gents, what do you think of land reform and land issues? Oh, well, um, um, all, I know, all I know is I'm out here in Brown, and you know what? I'm in a good land, land right here. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's good shit yeah. right here. Yeah. We're out here doing our thing. Like, you know what? I mean, this is good. This is a good land around here. This is a yeah, good. I mean, we're not being harassed. It's Brown. Yeah. You know, we're just yeah. good. Some of us are hustlers, yeah. like me. But it's all right. You know, I know nothing about land reform, but you know what? This, this is good right here. Yeah. Okay, tell me more. Um, look, man, all I know is, as long as we don't end up like Robert, you know who, Robert M. We're all right, man. We're good, you know. We're all right. We're chilling. It's Brown. It's Brown. As long as we don't end up like Robert M. I won't finish it. The willing buyer, willing seller basis is not working. It's just not working. So someone needs to look into that and find a more appropriate means to speed up the whole process and return land back to its original owners. Give me whatever you got. Okay, South Africa is one of the countries that has the most amount of free space that's owned by the government of any democratized nation in the world. And we shouldn't reassign land. We should just train the people who are involved with commercial farming proper skills so that if they ever do have land aside to them they know what to do with it because that's the problem it's not that you own land or don't own land the wrong people are in control of it in terms of like who knows what to do with it not white or black people the current land uh, proportions how it is distributed is still skewed what we want to see is we want to see a radical shift in land redistribution the minority which are white people they still occupy the most of the land. I'm not talking about the state land. I know that the state is the majority land owned. But residential land, agricultural land, uh, that is closed or close to job opportunities like uh, where our people work, is still far. They are in the outskirts. They live in Soweto. They live in Dipslot, very far from economic um, activities. So we'd love to see a change, a radical change in that. In that our people get given, must get given uh, agricultural land so that they learn also like white people did. Remember, no one was born with the skill of farming and all that and all that. So they must also learn that and white people must also participate in that process to show that will also speak to reconciliation that we once negotiated, if you still remember. 
and in terms of residential land. We want to see our people coming closer. This thing of white people moving out whenever we move in, it is also wrong. We want to see uh, United South Africa. If, it knows, if it's not going to happen, then unfortunately we have to go to a revolution where everything that we know about land and race relations will change. And if it means we must go to war, then let it be. Wow, some really interesting and divided views there. Um, but I, th- I think before we dig into to, to, to some of the contemporary views and what's going on now, we really need to, to go back back into time and say, how do we get to where we are? And for this, um, we're talking to Professor William Baynard of Oxford University. Um, Prof, are you on the line? I am, yes. Okay, fantastic. Now, you've done a lot of research and, and writing into, into the history of, of land dispossession and land reform in the country. And I'd, I'd like to first just ask you about, about where we've come from, and especially focusing on the 1913 Land Act. Now, this is largely seen as, as the watershed moment when everything changed, and, and, and you, ha- you think slightly differently on the matter. Uh, yes. Well, the Land Act, the critical thing is when we're most African people dispossessed, and that was before the Land Act. It was through conquest and sometimes through legal mechanisms um, that accompanied conquest. And the Land Act in some ways halted that process. It came after the period of conquest, and it said, okay, we've got to stop the alienation of further land which African people occupy, um, because there's nowhere for them to go. And also, um, it's it considered that, in fact, there should be, over the longer term, more land protected for Africans. So my problem is not with the fact that there was massive dispossession in South Africa. That's patent. The issue is, what did the Land Act actually do? Mm-hmm. However, should I carry on? Um, sorry, I think Greg yeah, has a follow-up. I, I just want to ask quickly, Prof. You're speaking to Greg from the Daily yeah, Maverick. Yeah. Um, what, just just to clarify, what you're saying is where where often most people think of the Land Act and often associate it with um, the the ANC leader Sol Plaky's comments about you know waking up and and all of a sudden being dispossessed. What you're actually saying is the the land was was taken or, or dispossessed from from Black South Africans prior to that during colonial periods and and settlement of white settlement before that and the land act in fact tried to try to protect a portion of land for africans yes but it also did other things so and this is terribly important it scheduled certain areas which were going to become well they were called the reserves then but it also prevented african people in law from purchasing land outside of those reserves so that is important to to say it didn't in itself take land away, but it stopped Africans from purchasing. I'd make one qualification about mm. that, though, that the Act wasn't immediately implemented. So, for example, in the old Transvaal between 1913 and 36, over 800 farms were actually bought by Africans or portions of farms. So our argument is also that a single piece of legislation doesn't change everything. We have as historians to understand social processes. I mean, I mean that's quite interesting. So now I'd like to now move moving on from that. Now it sounds like you're you're pushing for a more a more nuanced understanding of of, of the the time period with which dispossession happened, and and you've raised yeah. legislation. And so how does that? Why, why is it important that we understand that? How does that play into to what happens now? That this more detailed understanding of how land was actually dispossessed. I think 
for three reasons. Firstly, as historians, we like to get things <laughs> as accurate as we can. Yep. And for us, the fact that something happens in 1910 or 1930 or yep. 1960 makes a difference. It might not make such a difference for other people, I accept. Yep. But it, because the second thing is, I, I think an important issue around dispossession is that although African South Africans possessed uh, quite comprehensively, they did retain quite a lot of land. And ironically, the Land Act and subsequent legislation helped them to do so. And we, we can't understand South African history without that, because that then became the basis of the Bantistans, or the homelands, and in many ways it provided black South Africans with the kind of traditionalist heartland of their old kingdoms and chiefdoms, and they are still there. And if we don't understand that process, we can't understand the present either. They are there, and anybody who lives in South Africa knows that there's a resurgence of interest or claims by chiefs and so on. Prof, um, just just if, if we're going to question, um, if, if we look at land dispossession, and obviously it happened largely before the 1913 Land Act, but the government, in terms of restitution and redistribution claims, the government set 1913 as the cut-off. Does that make it then problematic in terms of um, in terms of finding some sort of reconciliation on the land matter? Well, I, I'm, I'm really not going to contradict myself. I think the restitution, the Fritz Restitution Act was a good act. But it, I, I think to some extent some people in the ANC realized that it would be a narrow act. Okay. By that I mean making 1913 a cutoff precisely meant that you were not opening up all the land in South Africa um, because not so much land was taken after 1913. Mostly, in fact, it was relatively small areas of land, like what they used to call a terrible name, the black spots, areas of privately owned land by black people which were then demarcated in white districts to out of the homeland. So now I feel that the act was very important because these were politically sensitive areas of land. NGOs were organized around them. And so that political land was really worth um, coming under the Restitution Act. But personally, I also feel that restitution is not the route to go for the big problem the whole issue around access to land in South Africa. I can explain that more fully if you want me to. Just just, just a little bit, please. Um, well, what, what do you think is the big problem and, and what is the a potential way to go? Well, for, for me, in some ways, the heart of the issue is how does South Africa retain a fair and deracialized society, but one in which the agricultural industries can still be very productive as they are now and where we have food security and uh, hugely diverse agriculture and so if all the land is going to be held returned as it were now the rest of the, by, by having that 1913 cutoff date it means that all the land is not going to be returned but also not to chiefs because uh, that really for me isn't the route to go for productive agricultural production. So I feel that the route is much more around trying to keep intact the big farms. Mm -hmm. And sugar industry 
wine industry, timber, the big maize farms, and so on, and finding ways of deracializing these rather than handing those back to, say, chiefs and sea claimants or masses of smallholders who are unlikely to have the capital to farm them very effectively. Mm-hmm. Now, some land should definitely go to the smallholders. And of course, I'm not suggesting that those who have land should be deprived. On the contrary, they should be. They should have not enhanced protection. But somehow the, the route seems to me, how do you protect and develop and deracialize the productive industries? And Prof, just before we let you go, you've written this piece um, along with, I think it was Peter Delius, um, about about questioning some of the common narrative around the 1913 Land Act. Have you noticed um, in, in recent times uh, an effect of, or, or, or perhaps misrepresentation or, and misinformation around land issues? And is that a problem that we're facing now that, that we're not actually getting the facts right, and the the discussion might be coming from a from a misinformed um, starting point? Well, I, I honestly don't want to say that historians get everything right and everybody <laughs> else thinks wrong. That's not the case. Everybody has their viewpoint, and I am extremely interested in listening to everybody's viewpoint. So we're trying to get things as accurate as we can. We're trying to make sense of of the world as South Africa sees it now. Um, and what can be most socially beneficial to the to the country at the same time as getting rid of the the legacy of apartheid. And some people are more radical on land issues or more populist. They would want to see all the land given over. And um, they use, in some senses, the Land Act as the instrument of dispossession um, in their rhetoric and their arguments. We're saying it wasn't quite like that. It was more complicated. Um, and that it would be better to build from what what there is now. Um, absolutely. I mean, uh, Prof, th- th- thanks for giving us that, that insight, and, and you've done some great work in, in your writing in the book Land Divided, Land, Rest- Land Restored. Um, I know we need to let you go, so thanks for making time, and, and I'm sure we'll have you on the show again soon. Thank you very much. Perfect. Thanks, Prof. Um, now, Greg, some, some interesting points came out of that conversation. Um, namely, this there seems to be this juncture of food security, the issue of traditional rulers, the small-scale versus large-scale farmers, and the ability of, of small holdings to, to use the to use land should it be um, sort of redistributed to them. So it's, it seems that there's, there's five, six, seven issues that we're finding under this big umbrella of land reform. I think, and that, I think that's one of the problems. Land reform is such a complicated issue because even, so I've got all these different things, you know, such as food security and, and so on and so on and so on, as, as well as, um, redistributing the lands in terms of non-racializing it and, and redistributing it in terms of a way that, that, um, Responds to the dispossession both in, in the apartheid, pre-apartheid and colonial periods. But at the same time, there's also this huge emotional pull I think all South Africans have with land. Absolutely. Um, it, it, it's such a, it's such a part of life. And I think, I think almost all cultures in South Africa have, you know, if you look at what, one of the, one of the chapters in the book you mentioned, um, mentions the different poetry around land from, you know, from Afrikaans to Khoisan to, I think, Tswana and things like that. Um, and, and it looks about the, the very, very strong ties all cultures have to land. So there's also this emotional aspect to it too. And, and defining yourself according to how much land you have and your connection with the land. But I think, so, so with all these complicating factors, 
it's it's a difficult issue to get your head around, and it's at the same time it's easy to pump your fist about. Yeah. But and then then it's also easy to to like those first sort of couple of guys um, who I must say were drinking on the streets and smoking Hubley and Brumfontein. <laughs> it's easy to sort of stick your head in the sand and just say, ah, oh, you know, the land issue is good. I'm here in Brumfontein. This is the land. I'm liking the land, and just sort of ignoring the bigger picture completely. Absolutely, and I think there's also there's also I don't know if it's a, one would call it a myth that, that that the land reform issue doesn't affect people in urban areas, and there's a there's a feeling that you know what it's a rural thing, it's a farmer's thing. Um, and you know, us in the urban area, we're really not really bothered about that. Which is completely wrong, because um, uh, there's there've been you know thousands and thousands of land um restitution claims processed where people in urban areas mainly get money for for their land claims, particularly what Professor Bainhart was just talking about areas sort of you know like District Six and things, yeah. where people were were forced um there were forced evictions and they were often quite violent. Those things have been solved, but look, the land issue also is important for South Africa's development and and current issues on another front for urban. Areas just because still we have we have around cities most of the black population around cities live around in in the townships or, or on the outskirts in in following the apartheid spatial patterns yeah. that that were set up to keep uh, black people out of the suburbs and out of the cities and only, only have them commute into yeah. these um, economic zones and and largely that that is still the pattern we're following now and and we don't have any sort of um, or enough. Um, of, of a deconstructing of that pattern. And, and we still largely have the, the, the system where people have to travel from one area to quite far and, and, and with few sort of, um, um, key transport nodes into zones of economic inclusion. And I think that's, that's one of the things that, um, largely drives the conversation on land reform now. Let's let's just put it on the table. Like we have to obviously talk about the economic freedom fighters and Julius. Absolutely, Salema. and that's and that's I think more of an issue, or seems to be more of an issue of housing. It doesn't seem, um, it doesn't seem to me to be an issue of justice and taking back what belongs to us. It seems to be an issue of a need-driven approach of of, of housing is needed, and and a, and a, and a taking back or a taking of land in, that seems sort of unused, whether it's privately owned, publicly owned. It's we need housing. We need. We need places to have our informal settlements, formal settlements to have our housing and, and people to sort of set up shop and take it. Look, I think it's a bit of both because number one, there is this historic, uh, there's this historic idea that white people took our land. Yeah. Not obviously that's true. Um, our land was stolen. It was taken. And then, and then that justifies some sort of feeling of, um, that it must be corrected. That, that, that we need land back and we need houses and things like that. And so, so while in urban areas a lot of people aren't aren't looking for farms, aren't looking for large tracts of lands, they're they're, they're not necessarily looking for for hectares and hectares to be returned to either themselves or their communities or traditional authorities. They often are motivated number one by the need and number two by by the the the, the this historic memory and, and and pain really, and and we've seen the economic freedom fighters exploit. And or, or or just I guess tap into um and this feeling as well as, and that yeah as, as well as this feeling of the they they, they talk about the land more more generally but what, what we've seen in practice is where we saw last week on the West Rand there was a land invasion by led by EFF supporters um onto private land where people wanted to set up informal settlements yeah. there's been the so-called Malemaville being in being Pretoria, yeah. being, uh, in, in Pretoria, Pretoria sorry. north of Pretoria. There's, there was, there was another land invasion, um, last week, um, in, uh, Free State. And I think there might be a couple more, but you know, so, but all of those land in, land invasions, as we call them, you know, but, but 
obviously there's another side to that coin and, and often people say that it's their land and they just yeah. need, need, need space. What they are generally motiv- motivated by is just simply setting up another informal settlement. Yeah. It's not, it's not going back to take a large amount of land yeah, back. Yeah, this bold, like, point. It's really just setting up a, a community there. That's right. And, and, and feeling, often being promised land from a community, from an informal settlement, being promised land and services. Government doesn't deliver. So what do you do? You look across to the farm next door or that empty government land next door and you go in with your, with your materials and you build your shacks. I mean, I think what, what I'm trying to connect is really the, that gap between um, wider EFF policy and what is rhetoric and what's happening at their branches on the ground. So mm-hmm. is it, is it, is it fair to say that this is in line with EFF policy, what the, what the branches are doing? That it, this is, this is it's, the direction of the party. Well, in, in at the, the EFF's, uh, first People's National Assembly, I think it was called last, last December, mm-hmm. um, Julius Malema encouraged land invasions in his speech. Um, so, so that definitely seems to reflect that it is EFF policy. Okay. But their broader policy, if they come to government, is to actually have, have all the land owned by the state and then I think I think particularly farming land all owned by the state and then and then those who use it would would take leases and think like long-term leases you know 50 years or whatever it is and so that's their broader policy but but that would if they were able to implement these policies it would in effect um, very much help them allow them to to transform the land much much more rapidly because the state would own it all basically I mean it's 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 interesting seeing this dissection of what seems to be sporadic, seems to be need-based across the country. I mean, you're saying free states, some of the western, some of the deep states, so not quite across the country, but in different provinces. And and comparing this to what seems to be an EFF attempt, at least at a policy level, to come up with, with something they tend to implement and roll out over time, which is something that I think we've seen the state, I think it's fair to say, struggle with since, since 94, of how to, of how to create land reform policy around redistribution and restitution. Mm-hmm. That, that addresses all these competing sort of demands. I think that's how it has to yeah. function for the EFF because land invasions in South Africa is nothing new. You know, there's, it's been around for a long time and, and all sorts of informal settlements have been set up by people just squatting on land and then that, then that balloons and it becomes, becomes a very large informal settlement. So it's nothing new. So for EFF, I think the thing is on the one hand, they have to call for these grand, um, grand proposals of land reform and mm. Julius Malema and his party are really tapping into essentially the the disgruntlement of the population that land hasn't been reformed targets of restitution and and redistribution have not been met again and again and again and so they're tapping into that anger and that pain and then at the same time they're tapping into this thing on the ground that is actually it's going to happen so people are going to invade land because they they need land for an informal settlement yeah. we just we have a housing problem in south africa and particularly an affordable low cost housing problem and and so it's going to happen and i think they're just sort of they're leading that rather than just letting it happen absolutely um i think we just need to go into the break right about now after which we'll we'll talk about some of the challenges um since post 94 um land reform and and and, and how that's playing out now
That's Kendrick Lamar with the song "Eye Off" his new album. Greg, I think you've been listening to this. I've played Feel the Tracks. It came out dropped yesterday, a week early. I think on an anniversary of one of Tupac's um, key recordings or something like oh, that, wow. wasn't it? No, I think I think so. It dropped a week early on that, but it's supposed to be the album of the year. Well, yeah, I mean, I haven't listened think? yet. Hopefully, I'll do so this weekend. But I mean, I can't wait. But that, I love "I Black and the Berry" is awesome. Why? Why is there all this hype around Kendrick Lamar? I think just his first album really took a lot of people by storm, man. Just the In quality the of that album. No, there was Section 80, the mixtape, ADHD, the mixtape, and I think Good Kid, Mad City, the album was just, anyway, it blew me out of the water, man. I mean, this does not have anything to do with land reform, so we should probably stop. Anyway, so we've been talking about land reform. We spoke to uh, Professor William Baynard of Oxford University, and he gave us a bit of a rundown um, of, of history of land uh, dispossession and uh, redistribution since 1913 and prior to. And how that plays into, into how we understand land issues today and, and, and effectively, or in the end, how we design policy, which is, I think, the, the, the point we need to get to. Um, so we're just about to speak to Ben Cousins shortly, but before, before we get into that, um, um, Greg, you, you've, you've done some, some research and some writing into, into the challenges of, of post-apartheid land reform policy and how that hasn't, that hasn't gone, uh, I think, as successfully as we wanted it to go 20 years in. Hey, that's a rather broad sweeping statement, but there, there are so many challenges it's hard to list. I think, I think the writing you're actually talking about is, is the look at how traditional authorities perhaps fit in with, with the land reform program. I mean, absolutely. That's something I've been quite interested in because traditional authorities played a big role in, 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 in the apartheid government's, um, sort of a subjugation of the people. And it's, it's been interesting how that still played out in, in democratic governments, mm. uh, in, in, in how they execute land reform. So, so I think that the best place to start is to set the picture. Yeah. During, during apartheid, the, well, one of, one of the key forms of social engineering was, was to get, um, to essentially establish all, all of the homelands and get African people to, to live there or, or, or and, and commute to the, to the rest of South Africa, the majority of South Africa, which was, you know, about, um, 80, 87% of the country. Mm. And those homelands were, were, um, it, it was, it was administered, defined on the 1951 Bantu Authorities Act, and that that sets up largely a relationship. Although it changed in certain amendments after that, sets up a relationship between. Largely, you have at the, at the top is the white state. Second, you have you have a leader of a homeland or or, or a traditional authority, you mm-hmm. know, under under that like a headman, and those guys often acted as almost um, you know taxman, judge, and jury all all at the same time, and. So, so that's how the sort of situation was in the homelands when, when, uh, apartheid ended. And so they controlled the land and often took taxes and often very, um, arbitrary in, in the way they did that and, and could also, could also institute sort of forms of punishment and things like that. And mm-hmm. at the same time, they would, in general, not, not always, but you sort of had to answer to the white state and the leaders or, or fit in with that, with that system to keep your position, you know, position as a, as a, as a traditional, um, leader in a homeland. Though, though that's certainly not the blanket case. It's, you know, it's, it's sort of the, a broad, broad sweeping view. And so with that, with that system, it's, it's, it's sort of still there, you know? It's hard, hard to describe, but it's, it's sort of still there, or it's a little bit more complicated now, but, so effectively now, I think we have about 17 million people living in, in what would be the what former homelands, homelands, these sort of rural areas, yeah. and that's also, interestingly, where a lot of the, the deepest poverty strikes in these same areas. And, and because the traditional authorities sort of realized a certain point in, towards the end of apartheid and in the negotiations and switched over to, to, 
to to the side of the NC. Sorry, you're I'm saying sorry, you're yeah, Greg, I'm just going to stop you there. We're just about to go to <laughs> Professor Ben Cousins of the University of Western Cape. Um, <laughs> now, uh, Prof, welcome to the show. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Good, thank you. Now, Greg and I have been digging into this this great book that you've you've been part of putting together, "Land Divided, Land Restored." Um, and and one one thing that's really jumped out at us is 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 a feeling in some of the articles that that the the point and the purpose of land reform has has somewhat been lost. Um, and and we're quite interested into 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 how you think this has happened. Good. Um, it's an important question because what bedevils land reform in this country is precisely mm. lack of clarity as to its wider purpose and what its key focus should be in terms of who benefits. And while we had relative clarity in the 94 to 95 period when the ANC saw land reform as a direct attack on rural poverty, the leading edge of a comprehensive program of rural development, since about 1999 when President Mbeki took office, We've increasingly seen a lack of clarity, befuddlement, confusion as to who the real beneficiaries should be and what the real point of it is. And so now we have the notion that uh, a key focus of land reform should be to promote emerging black commercial farmers, who are always likely to be just a small proportion uh, of the total number of of rural people and an even smaller proportion of the rural poor. Uh, And... uh, and and really, the, the larger purpose has has, uh, has been lost on us. So I think there's, there's a real concern that under uh, President Zuma and Mr. Nquinti, um we now have a situation where not only is there lack of clarity, but there's a discrepancy between what is said and what's actually being done. So it's a level of rhetoric. We're now identifying this as, you know, taking back our land from white farmers uh, and redistributing it to the to the uh, smallholders and so on. In fact, the opposite is taking place. The real beneficiaries of land reform now are old and new elites, uh, in, in complete contradiction to what is being said. So, as a result, the public is even more confused than they were in the past. Just to take you back, uh, Professor, what is what, what what was in '94 the primary objective of land reform? Uh, well, it was to address the legacy of dispossession, which was seen as a fundamental cause of rural poverty. Mm-hmm. So dispossession, of course, has a long history, but speeded up during the apartheid period and in the period of forced removals. And land reform was seen as a way of redistributing land so that it is a much more equitable distribution of ownership of productive land in particular across the country, as well as restoring land uh, lost through this, these forced dispossessions, as well as securing the underlying land tenure rights. Uh, all three of them key legacies of both apartheid and the colonial period. And us in the media, often we like to sort of talk about the failure of um, trying to achieve or trying to reform those three key legacies. Since 1994, how has the government gone and how, how as a country have we actually gone in trying to reform reform those um, those legacies of apartheid and colonialism? Well, the, the, the chapters above different authors in the, the Land Divided book uh, cover most areas of land reform pretty comprehensively, with one exception, and that's the question of farm workers. But in respect of land restitution, um, we see that uh, the large number of claims that have been resolved are actually urban claims settled through cash settlements. And there are many thousands, possibly as many as 10,000 large rural claims, which have been uh, lodged since 1999 and have still not been resolved. Um, and so, in fact, the contribution of land restitution to changing the land uh, overall pattern of land ownership in the country has been actually very small. 
Um, and with the opening up of the new claims process, it's unclear how those uh, old claims uh, are ever going to be resolved. In respect of redistribution, of course, the original goal was transferring 30% of, of commercial farmland in five years. That was later adjusted to uh, a 15-year period, but uh, and subsequently uh, rest, restitution was added uh, into that mix. And the combining restitution and redistribution is now only 8%, so very, very slow before uh, achievement of those goals, plus the problem that many projects have been so badly planned, designed, and supported um, that uh, many people have actually left land reform farms. So while the official figures say that, you know, there's several hundred thousand people who have benefited from restitution and redistribution, in practice it's probably a much smaller number. In respect of tenure reform, uh, farm workers have not really received res- uh, uh, security of tenure to date, partly because of poor implementation of laws and policies. And in communal areas, uh, we still don't have a law to uh, to meet the constitutional requirements in Section 25.6. And what we now see is a policy of supporting chiefs rather than securing the land rights of people. So we're really moving backwards on that case. So overall, very, very poor performance uh, in land reform as a whole. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think from reading the book and now from, from speaking to you, it, it paints quite a bleak picture of the progress we've made. I mean, you've, you've mentioned 8% of claims that have been processed. I think there's a statistic that it would take, I think, up to 200 years to to completely satisfy the claims that have been made at the, at the pace we've been going at so far. Um, I think one thing you've, you've mentioned is this issue of traditional chiefs, and Greg was talking about it just before we got you on the line. And that's, and, and there's, there seems to be a, an incentive for, for the state to, 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 to be in line or, or sort of be in bed with traditional chiefs with the expectation that they would deliver the rural vote. And how, how do you see that playing into land reform right now? Well, it's, it's, uh, I think those of us who follow the ins and outs of land reform policy have noticed that uh, since President Mbeki's time, there's very much been a pro-chief policy. Of course, the initial piece of legislation was the Traditional Leadership and Governance Framework Act, followed very soon thereafter by the Communal Land Rights Act, and more recently the Traditional Courts Bill. And what all of three of these seek to do is actually uh, uh, strengthen the powers of traditional leaders in various respects, land, dispute resolution, and so on, governance in general, to the extent that it's a gross distortion of uh, the powers that they had in the past. This no way corresponds to their actual roles and functions in pre-colonial society. And I think it's the result of deliberate political lobbying uh, by the chiefly lobby through Contra Lesa and others. Uh, and the ANC policy seems to be, let's support the rural elites in the hope that they will deliver votes for us. I think this may well backfire because we're seeing a sharp reaction by rural people. It's most noticeable in the Platinum Belt, where uh, many chiefs are involved in in crooked deals with mining companies and people are up in arms about that. Mm. But we see it actually happening in other parts of the country as well. For example, in um, the Eastern Cape just last week, uh, there was a court case in the Tala area where a chief was appointed a headman uh, in complete contradistinction to the local practice where headmen were elected. Uh, that the, the, that uh, headman was was uh, told by the court that he had to stand down. It was, he ignored that. Uh, the, an appeal was lodged, um, unfortunately supported by the government, by the Eastern Cape government in particular, a very reactionary stance indeed. And now the court has once again found that that headman must stand down because he has not been elected. So in areas like that, rural people are really beginning to fight back. 
And I think it's very, very unfortunate that the ANC has so openly thrown its lot in with a, a very corrupt and abusive traditional leadership. Prof, you've written about um, the, the the government and ANC government's attempts to seem to want to focus more on creating sort of a large-scale black um, farming industrial type class, but you're, you've written about how that's that's not the right approach. Can you just sort of break break down what the government's doing and and um, uh, explain your argument argument to us? Sure. Listen, the key policies that one needs to look at are firstly the uh, state leasehold uh, uh, policy. Uh, which outlines the conditions under which people get land through land reform at the moment. Basically, it's leasing it from the state um, with the possibility after 50 years of possibly getting ownership if you're a medium to large-scale farmer. Uh, if you're a small-scale farmer, you never get to, to get uh, full ownership of that land. And you have to look at the leasehold policy in conjunction with the recapitalization and development program, which uh, outlines the terms on which you can get financial support from government. Uh, and, in fact, uh, the current policy in redistribution is that you can't get a lease without a recapitalization grant, and you can't get a recapitalization grant without a lease. And that leaves many people who've acquired uh, ownership or occupation of land through the proactive land acquisition strategy stranded in the middle. Uh, they, they can't get uh, access to either program. And, the, but, and these, um, these are the, potential black farmers who, who, who could, could sort of increase these percentage numbers that we're talking about? Well, the problem is that uh, there are relatively few uh, black entrepreneurs or would-be farmers who have sufficient capital who can qualify to become a medium to large-scale farmer. There may be about 5,000 of them in the country. Uh, most of them belong to the Association of, uh, of uh, Farmers of South Africa and AFASA, and uh, about 5,000 of them are getting loans from the land bank. So these are quite small numbers. They're an important group, and they shouldn't uh, be disqualified from benefiting, but um, they are the ones that government is, is aiming at, and unfortunately, um, it's always going to be a relatively small number of them. They simply won't really change the fundamental character of the, of the agricultural system. I would argue that, on the other hand, we do have the potential, through land reform, to really reconfigure the agrarian sector, and here I would promote, uh, suggest that we target the 200,000 or so small-scale market-oriented uh, commercial farmers um, who oper often operate with family labor, who support mainly, supply mainly informal markets and are actually very productive despite lack of support and in the face of, the of all the odds. It seems to me that if we want to change the nature of landholding in the country and change the character of our agricultural system so that it's less dominated by a few fat cats, then these very productive, market-oriented smallholders, uh, are, that's the group that we should be looking at. And I think land reform policies can be designed uh, to benefit them. I mean, yeah, I mean, you mentioned this issue of the smallholders versus the larger-scale firmers. And how does, could you please uh, speak a bit about how that plays out with food security? I think that's another concern that, that has come up of, are we going to yes. focus on redistribution and restitution at the expense of being able to, to feed the country? Well, I think we have to uh, take account of current levels of productivity mm. um, and, and, uh, and, and notice that, in fact, uh, the food security of the country and important export earnings uh, do depend on the big players in the commercial farming sector. Now, it's estimated that actually of the 35,000 or so registered commercial farmers in the country, which might, might not be entirely accurate, might be an underestimate, but of those 35,000, 
The agricultural economists reckon that the top 20%, that is about 5,000 farmers, produce about 80% of all the food, all the produce. Uh, so that means that the other 28,000 farmers are pretty marginal. They're sitting on fairly large areas of land, probably between 70 and 80% of commercial farmland. In fact, they could be replaced by the beneficiaries of land reform without much of a threat to national food security. And this would give us uh, breathing space. Uh, to proceed with this long-term program of building up a new independent, small-scale black commercial farming class could begin to compete with the large guys over time. So there's a real opportunity here to both look after food security and do land reform, without land reform endangering it, uh, through targeting appropriately which land you take and to transfer to which kinds of people. So in other words, what I'm suggesting is we need to understand and look critically at the current structure, the distribution of production as well as of land ownership, disaggregate it and then target our uh, acquisition of land through land reform. But, Professor, it seems that the government's policies at the moment are actually going in the other direction. Um, why is this? Is it, is it because there's a lack of a community voice or, or, or does government just not know what they're doing? What, what's going on? Well, it's a bigger question for the whole country. Why is the <laughs> NC doing what it's doing when it would seem to be uh, <laughs> alienating its own its own uh, constituency, that is, the majority of South Africans? Uh, it's very clear, I think, to me, that in the rural sector, this is a policy aimed at both, the, uh, both supporting a, a new elite class, which I think is the real constituency of the Zuma government, but also not endangering the, uh, the existing interests. So although government likes to use the white farmers as a scapegoat, uh, behind the scenes it's actually talking to them and encouraging them to come to the party. And, of course, ma- many of the beneficiaries of the new policies are, in fact, failed white farmers who work as consultants or companies which offer themselves as strategic partners or individuals who offer themselves as mentors. These people are earning wrecking great amounts of money from government. Uh, public money. So you're um, talking about established businesses and established farmers actually exactly. really, really benefiting from the government's proposals rather exactly. than being transferred. Exactly. I mean, one of my PhD students interviewed a farmer the other day, a white farmer, who said land reform is failing at the right time for us. Wow. In other words, the real opportunities here for the existing guys uh, to benefit. And relatively small numbers of black South Africans, those 5,000 uh, would be commercial farmers, large-scale commercial farmers who, who stand to benefit. So why the NC's government is doing this, it's, it's hard to say, but I think it's going to start backfiring on them quite soon. Prof, we've seen the, since the introduction of the EFF, we've, we've seen um, them really raise the rhetoric on the issue of land reform. What impact do you think Julius Malema and his party has will have on, on the issue? Um, is it just further further um, misleading the public, or, or is it going to really put it on the table? What impact is it having? Well, it's, it's, uh, there are two effects. The one positive effect of the EFF being in Parliament is that it does raise the question of land and put it into the public debate. Uh, on the other hand, there's a negative impact, a negative effect as well, so that the ANC then feels uh, duty-bound to show uh, South Africans that they're, in fact, uh, taking the land issue seriously. They're not able to do this. They come up with these uh, laughable policies, such as the 12,000 hectare limit. Uh, oh, no, that's on foreign ownership, is it? That's foreign a... ownership, mm-hmm. which are really just a distraction. So in response to the FF, they don't, they're not uh, under pressure to come up with, uh, with persuasive and uh, practical and 
implementable policies. It's really a response at the level of rhetoric, and that's partly because the EFF doesn't engage with the, the details of the policy either. Mm. They also engage with the larger political rhetorical issues. So we get a dialogue at the level of, um, you know, uh, emotive slogans rather than the details of policy. Rational debate gets left behind. So the overall impact, unfortunately, is not positive. Um, yeah, I mean, Greg and I spoke about it a bit earlier, and it was it was quite worrying the the, the difference between the quality of debate and and the details of of policy. Anyway, Prof, before we let you go, my final question is: is Will you be going into politics, and and how do we get you as the president of the country? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's leave politicians uh, politics to the politicians. I think there's an important role for uh, researchers, scholars, for intellectuals, and so on, but more in uh, pulling apart the policies. Uh, showing their negative impacts and suggesting alternative ones, but it's up to people who are prepared to play the dirty game of politics to go in there. I don't think it's a role for us. Absolutely, and please keep up doing uh, the great work you're doing. Thanks a lot, Professor Thank ben you Cousins. very much. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. Um, um, that's about all time we have for today. I'd like to say a big thank you to Professor William Baynard of Oxford, Ben Cousins of UWC, University of the Western Cape, and just bring up the book, Land Divided, Land Restored, that they've they've worked on together with with a lot of academics from around the country and and, and perhaps around the country. Um, I think it's a really great summary of, of of land reform in South Africa and land dispossession, and I think a must read for anyone interested in the topic. Um, I think that's all time we have for today. A big thank you to Greg Nicholson of Daily Maverick. Thanks for having me as always. Fantastic, fantastic. And we will see you next week. Thanks for tuning in.